I'll say again, even just the risk that we might get to experience worship together like that <clears throat> next week should inspire us to be back next week. I, I am going to be teaching on the resurrection this morning. And uh, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, wow, it seems like every time I go to church, they're teaching on the resurrection. Well, that, that may be because you're only going on Easter. Um, and so that, that may be a motivator for you to, and if you're thinking like, it's at least every other time it's on resurrection, and then, and then it seems like the other one's always on the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, again, maybe you're a Christmas and Easter only type person. So there are all types of other topics we talk about and, and other passages. We just do them on other weeks. So feel free. To, uh, to be back anytime, and we love having you here, and it's great to all be here together and to gather and to worship together, to learn together, and um, man, what a gift it is. So, um, and here's a funny thing. So, normally, uh, our first service on week to week, we'll have, you know, two to 350 people, something like that, um, in the first service, and then we'll have a, a much larger crowd in the second service, and so I really said, hey, just God, last week, I told the church, like, hey, guys, I'm really nervous about the second service. We could easily have 800 people in here the second service. So as many of you as can, please come to the first service. So 800 people were here for the first service. I'm actually not kidding. Right at 800 people came to the first service. And uh, so I'm going to figure out how to communicate that in a, in a way that works better. So um, we, are, we are very glad you're here. I, I'm a little worried that there's more guests um, in this service than there are regular attenders, in which case I hope you didn't have to just greet each other. That's really awkward. Like, I don't know, I'm new, I'm new here too, but we're glad you're... Um, so hopefully there were enough people here who are regulars to greet people and, and, uh, and you got to experience that this morning and that the traffic wasn't too bad coming and going. I, I heard some bad words about, the, you know, uh, we got people trapped. So anyway, it'll all work out. It's great and a, a beautiful... Day, which is also not part of the tradition here at this church. Um, normally, Easter Sunday is just crazy, um, like Noah-esque floods, and so we're very, we're very glad for a beautiful day today. And um, so, praise God for that. This is the, the the Easter service. What we're celebrating on Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone belief of Christianity. Um, it is an all-in belief. It, it is either true or everything that we're doing, everything else that we may believe about Jesus Christ is, is a big joke. Um, I'm going to prove that from Scripture here in a second, but that's the way this works. In fact, it is so central, it is so core to the teachings of Christianity going back hundreds and hundreds of years that the traditional greeting for Christians, um, especially on Easter itself, um, proclaims this. So the traditional greeting for Christians on Easter and at other times as well is he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so many of you know that. And that's, that is how all in, how undeniable that is a part of our faith. Um, all brands of Christianity, I can completely disagree theologically with other brothers and sisters of other expressions of Christianity on all kinds of topics. But on this topic, this is a centralized connecting topic of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and that he died and that he was resurrected from the grave. This is, this is the vital. In fact, I'm going to, before we're done, I'm going to read to you the Apostle Paul quoting what was probably the first true Christian creed that was stated and stated and stated and repeated in early Christianity. Some people date this to within um, before AD 40, meaning with less than 10 years from the death of of Jesus Christ and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians were saying this to each other. So <laughs> this was clearly an important thing and not invented. I'm going to share a number of things. But look, look, for example, 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, this is how significant this is. The Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In fact, it's, it's not just as bad as vain. Listen to this. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So not only is, is, would, would the Christian faith be in vain, but it would be offensive, blasphemous to be a Christian if Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the grave. It's that important. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's a Christian euphemism for dead, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. That's it. Either Jesus was resurrected from the grave, which by the way would change everything. If Jesus Christ is resurrected from the grave, then it means that Christianity has some corner on some truth that others are missing. If not, then, then we have no, cope, no hope and no corner on any truth at all. We're just making it up. I don't know many of you well enough to know if you have put your faith in Christ, how that happened. What inspired that in you from your perspective? Maybe it was kind of a mystical or mysterious experience. Maybe you experienced something and it drove you to your knees or brought you to Christ. Maybe it was the bottom of the well type of thing and all you had was to look up. You, your life had tanked and you were at the bottom and you could only look up and maybe that's when you put your faith in Christ. Um, <clears throat> maybe it was, it was more of an intuitive type thing like you heard the gospel and you thought, that's the truth. I'm going with that. Obviously, it is the power of the Holy Spirit in all of us, God's Spirit working. But, but from our experience, it looks a little different. Maybe, maybe it was um, someone you, you loved led you to the faith. Um, maybe a grandfather or a, or a grandmother or a brother or sister or a parent or, or someone like that is who came to you and declared the truth of the gospel. And that's how you put your faith in Christ. Maybe it was even service. Maybe it was somebody else's ministry to you or you getting to experience ministry. Sometimes that's what gets people's attention is when they see God work through them. Um, we celebrate the faithfulness. We, we have so many servants, so many workers, so many volunteers here. It takes hundreds of people every single Sunday morning um, to do what God has called us to do here. And, and it takes so many people. Many of them are right now across the breezeway with kids just like they were the first hour. Um, this is a great opportunity. We have come to realize that one of these God has called our church to is to prepare a next generation of Christian leaders, of Christian ministers. Um, there's no telling what they're going to face, face in the United States um, over the next few generations. There's no telling. And so we need to prepare them. We need to raise them up as part of why we're here. Um, I mentioned the first service that just, just a couple of weeks ago, um, Kara Newberry, who is serving in, in with Disciple Now, a ministry that we run here. And <coughs> so she alongside with our student pastor, uh, our student minister, John Sturrock, and they met and with a young lady, and, and she prayed and put her faith in Jesus Christ. It was a great celebration. A couple of girls did at that event. But, but keep in mind, it's easy for us to kind of focus in on that key person, but the truth is, I mean, she was staying in someone's house who volunteered their house, and, and someone brought meals to that house, and someone invited the girls to go, and, and somebody else brought snacks for the kids, and Someone else moved chairs around on Saturday night, and, and, and someone donated the money that we could pull that stuff off. And understand, this is a, this is a team effort, 
at so many levels. This is a team effort from uh, the local church to the churches of our community and, and beyond that. So it's, it's a great thing. And to see, I hope you get to experience that. I hope you are involved in the work of Jesus Christ around the world and in this community. Um, just recently, when we host, we've hosted a couple of fundraiser events for different ministries here, and we get to see God's people pouring out tens of thousands of dollars to help um, you know, unwed pregnant mothers to, to come alongside um, abortion recovery care and fostering and adoption ministries and you name it. And so I, I'm, I'm proud that we get to be a part of what God is doing. I don't know what brings you here. Um, <coughs> while you're in this church this morning, um, aside from the power of God's spirit to um, set up really cool uh, divine appointments. But beyond that, I don't know what you thought was motivating you to be here. Uh, many people we've learned over the last few years come here um, because they, they feel like they've been traumatized by church. Uh, we talk about people who have been unchurched or, or poorly churched or even traumatically churched. And that's, that's sad, but it happens. Um, and so some people come here to rest. Um, sometimes it's even church staff. And, and they've left another church somewhere else and they come here and they're like, you know what, just uh, can you give me a few months to just recover? And um, yeah, of course, we're happy to have you here. If you're broken and you need healing, um, we want you to be here. That's, that's a good reason to have you here. Um, uh, we also know, I'm, I'm, I don't do this often from the pulpit, but, but we're going to, um, a, a family who is very much so involved in our church, the Barons, Don and Anel, um, were in a car accident um, yesterday or the day before, and so we're going to pray for them here in a second, and um, they're recovering, but um, we we're going to pray for them. And then I also want to mention, maybe you're here because you need to be broken, Maybe you're here and in your arrogance and in your pride and in your narcissism, you've decided you get this and you don't need any help. And the truth is you need God to break you. Um, if you're here, I, I hope that that happens for you. Um, a really good friend of mine, a mentor uh, and, and counselor of mine who lives in California called me yesterday. He was on his way to visit his father in hospice. And he said, this may be the last time I go see my dad. Um, and his dad has been, I would say, bordering on violently opposed to the gospel for decades. And so my friend Johnny said, would you just pray um, that God would break his heart and help him to hear the truth and realize he needs God? So I'm going to pray for those two prayer requests right now. They just represent um, so many other of the things. I know there are people in here today. I know many of you, for one reason or another, are in need of God to do a special act. So pray for yourselves and for one another right now as I, as I lead us in a quick prayer. Father, <coughs> we know that you are faithful even when we're not. Um, we thank you for the baptisms this morning. What a great celebration as the sun was coming up. Father, I thank you for the first service and for all those people who were here for the chance to worship with them. And I thank you for these men and women, boys and girls who are here today and the chance to worship and learn here. God, I pray you would guide us and you would change us, that you would, that you would heal those of us who are broken like the barons right now. I, I pray you would wrap your arms around them and make them well. And Lord, for those of us who need to be broken, I pray that you would do that. Those of us who have a hard time bending the knee and bowing the neck, I pray that you would, that you would break us, get us to the point where, where our spine is bent before you. I pray that for Johnny's father. I, I pray that he will hear the truth and his heart will be softened and he will listen to you and live out the faith for whatever time he has left and that we can spend eternity hanging out together. I pray these things, Lord, because you are God who loves to give good gifts. And I know there are plenty of other people who need a, an expression of your good gifts today. And I pray you would provide that in your son's magnificent name. Amen. 
So <clears throat> I want to talk about what a reasonable argument is. Why Christianity is a reasonable faith. You may not know that. You may have been brought up to believe that Christianity is a check your brain at the door or a, a pay no attention to the man behind the curtain type of faith. But we're not. There are hard questions and hard things we face, like human suffering, like challenges, like evil around the world. And, and those are hard conversations. We're not afraid of them. Um, we talk about them on, on other Sundays um, and on Wednesday nights and other times. And so we're, you're welcome to come bring those questions anytime. But um, those, are some, those are some tough ones. But the, the truth is we have a reasonable faith. Christianity is a rational faith. Again, you may be, maybe your experience has been more experiential or more mystical or more whatever, and that's awesome. But for some people, there's sometimes these rational barriers between them and belief. Like, they want to believe, but, but this is in the way, or that's in the way, or this is in the way. And sometimes as Christians, we prop up barriers that are really silly. And the truth is that, that what you believe about creation or the end times or whatever, those are not questions that are required a certain belief in order to be saved. In order to put your faith in Christ, all you have to believe is that he's worthy of putting your faith in that he did live and he did die and he was resurrected from the grave. And, and so I, I want to explain to you, this, this is the simple, this is from, uh, I steal this from Dr. William Lane Craig, who's one of my favorite apologists, but <laughs> he says that the Christianity, a reasonable faith, is, is like if you're running down a mountain and there's a storm behind you and you're at risk of dying. And as you're running down the mountain from the storm, you come to a fork in the road, a fork in the path. And you've got a decision to make. Do I go right or do I go left? One of these paths leads you back, back up the mountain and to certain death. And the other one leads you down the mountain and to salvation. Ben, what do you pick? You got to pick one, right or left? Right. Ben goes right. That's called blind faith. You don't have any reason. Ben has no reason to pick right over left. I mean, maybe it slightly seems to be going downhill. Left seems to be slightly going. But you know, that's not how that works. Have you ever been up in the mountains? So, this is called blind faith. Hopefully he gets lucky, right? But this isn't what we're called to in Christianity. Christianity is a rational faith. So imagine if you come down the hill. This is, a, this is the difference. So you put your faith. Ben just put his faith in the right path to save him. Right versus left. In the right path in order to save him. That he has just put all his faith in that. That is faith. That's what faith means. Mark Twain says faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, that's a... That's a jaded, um, backwards definition of faith. That is not what faith is. Faith just means to put your trust in something. And faith, we put it, he puts that trust in that right path to save him. Hope it does. That's blind. But if you come running down the hill and there's a sign in the middle of the pathway and the sign makes it clear one direction is down the mountain and one direction is back up the mountain. That one doesn't. So don't, it doesn't, don't try to read that. That's not going to help you. But, but if, you, if you come to the path and one of them says down the hill and the other one says up the hill. So pointing to the right is an arrow and it says down the mountain. Which, what, what, is, what is the rational thing to do? Like participation is allowed. That's what, yeah, you go right, right? You go down the mountain. That's what you're trying to do. That's rational. That's not blind at that point. Now it's a rational decision. It says that way's down, so, so I go that way down. Now what kind of faith are you placing in that path? The exact same faith that Ben was when he was blind. He's still trusting in that path to save him. Then it was blind faith. Now it's rational faith. Now it's a reasonable decision to make. It makes sense to make that call. It's rational. Same faith, but now it's based on evidence. 
Even better, I like this. So imagine you're running down the hill and you run into a forest ranger who's also trying to get down the hill, right? And a forest ranger's saying, everybody off the mountain, everybody off the mountain. And he's pointing like this down the right path. Go, go, go down the mountain. He's running down the mountain himself. Now, I will say, <coughs> my, my, my dad's a forestry professor. So where I come from, this is a funny picture. One, because my dad's looking more and more like that all the time. Um, he would appreciate that. But, but this is what forest rangers look like. And we're, this is the one we always hunt for is one who looks like that. They've, he's been there a while. He knows the way around. He's forgotten. A, but that's, that's my family. Maybe funnier or even more trustworthy for you to think of this guy. Maybe, maybe, maybe Smokey jumps out and you go, oh, it's Smokey. And, Sm and you're not creeped out by the giant bear costume. And you go, I'm going to, Smokey heads down the right path. Everybody off the mountain, follow me. And he goes down the right path. What is it reasonable to do? Follow him. Because it's reasonable, it's rational to follow the person who knows which direction is the correct direction. That's a rational decision making. That's something that's, it's not, it's not blind. It's reasonable to do that. And so I want to show you that it's reasonable to put your faith in the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. Now I'm going to warn you, if he did, it should change everything about our lives. That's actually the hard part. We'll get there in a second. Here's the, here's the conversation that was going on. Listen to this. You got to love this. Um, so it, Matthew did this for us, not on purpose. Matthew wasn't intending to create what he did. He was, he was warning the early Christians against something that was a rumor that was going around. In Matthew 28, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. <clears throat> if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew's trying to protect people from hearing what was spread through the Jewish population at that time, which is, oh, the Roman guards fell asleep and the disciples came and got the body. That was the rumor that was being passed. And Matthew's like, yeah, don't believe that. They were paid to say that. So in other words, conversations went like this. Hey, did you hear about Jesus? This is what was going on 2,000 years ago. And they dressed just like these two guys, literally them. If you grew up in Sunday school, they all looked just like that. Yeah, yeah. The second guy says, yeah, the Romans crucified him. Oh, but he rose from the grave, says the first man. Nah, the guards fell asleep and his people took the body. This, see, this is the conversation, you understand from that path, this is the conversation that was happening. And then the other guy says, no, no, see, that's what they were paid to say. They were paid to say that they fell asleep. This is the conversation that apparently was happening around the time of Jesus' resurrection. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. This isn't what, why Matthew wrote this down, but he, he revealed something for us. The debate that was going on then was this. Notice what isn't being debated. Both of them accept the same starting ground. What is that starting ground? The body is gone. You start the discussion with the body being gone. That's a pretty awesome place for us to get to start the conversation. Understand that if the early Jews or the early Christian, I mean early Jews or early Romans, if they could have shown up with a body, if when the Christians started running around going like, he's been resurrected, and the Romans go, no, no, we, we, we got him. Here's, right here. Or the Jews had said, no, no, we, we have the body all along. We had it. Fooled ya. It, Christianity would have been smothered in its infancy. 
there would be no Christianity. It would be nothing. See, the, the, there's, no, there's no motivation for the Romans or the Jews to take and hide the body. The only people who would be motivated to do it would be the early followers. We'll get to that in a second. So the idea would be that the only rational option is that the early followers of Jesus Christ did in fact somehow get their hands on the body and hide it. Then they created a fiction that we have in our four Gospels. So that's, that's what we have to believe. That's, that's the only argument that makes much sense. I know that there are some fringe people right now who are teaching that there never was a Jesus of Nazareth. But understand, that is fringe. That's, that's, that's the people who think we're going to, you know, find buildings on Mars when we get there or something like that. I mean, that's a, that's the, they're the foil hat type of people. This is, there's not a rational case to make. It is unreasonable to make the case that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist. If we throw him out, we're going to have to throw out about two-thirds of historical figures because there's more evidence for him within a very short amount of time of his life and death that, that, um, that you're going to have to, really, we're going to lose a lot of people from history if we're going to throw him out. Um, and, and some of them way more recent. <clears throat> so the idea that Jesus didn't exist at all is very, very weak. A very weak argument to make. The idea that Jesus wasn't really dead is an even weaker argument. We are, after all, talking about the Romans. Um, the Romans who, who traveled all over the known world to discover new, exciting cultures of people and kill them all. That's what they did. They imposed peace by killing people. And so eventually when they were all dead but Romans, then you had peace. Pax Romana was at the point of a spear. Everyone either capitulated or was killed. Everyone in the known world. If anyone knew dead, it was Romans. The idea that the Romans would have made a mistake and thought someone was dead when they really weren't is not rational and insulting. They may come back from history and kill you. That's a, they would not accept that at all. Like that would be not even on the table. That would be, fan yeah, they wouldn't like that. So, so what we're left with is that he lived, he died, and, and somehow the tomb is empty. And the only people really motivated to fictionalize this would be the early Christians. That's the, I mean, you're left with them. So let's throw them out as well as an option. One is, you get this character named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he's an interesting cat. Let's, let's read just a tiny bit about him. Now, there was a good man. There was a man named Joseph from the town, Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb of cut stone where no one had ever been laid. From Luke 23. Now, this is an interesting fiction. If you don't believe, if you think this has been invented, then it's intriguing that, that the early disciples would invent Joseph of Arimathea. One, he doesn't make a lot of sense to invent someone like this, mainly because he's a member of the council. This is the same council that had Jesus killed. So, so the idea that the early Christians would have tried to make a hero out of one of the people that they really feared and hated early on doesn't make a lot of sense. That we get such detail that he, he has such where, where he's from, that he had a tomb and a garden, that, that this type of detail would be really odd to put that into a fictionalized account and it doesn't lend any credence to the story at all. In fact, it makes it easier to check for the early people. All the first or, th first or second generation of Christians would have had to do, or doubters would have had to do, is hunt down this dude. Hey, really? Is there a Joseph of Arimathea? Well, let's go find him. What does he say about this? Did he really do this? It would be giving this much detail. It was a bad idea if you're inventing this. 
Besides the fact that they would certainly not be motivated to turn a hero out of the bad guys of the story. You just don't do that. If you were writing a fictionalized account of 9-11, you would not portray an Al-Qaeda member running through the World Trade Centers trying to save people. That would, unless it really happened, there'd be no need to do that. So that's important. Maybe even more important from the historical account is what we find in Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, there's, there's a lot of discussion on just how many Marys actually showed up at the tomb. Um, I'm not an expert on that. It was three or maybe four women showed up um, when you take all the gospel accounts and kind of put them together. And at least two of them were Mary, maybe three. And it seems like one of them was probably Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, here's, I want you to note first. So these women are showing up at the tomb on Sunday morning. So Saturday was a Sabbath. They didn't show up then, obviously, because Jewish people don't do that. They don't walk around a lot and do a lot of work on the Sabbath. So they wait till Sunday morning to show up. Why are these women, Jesus' own mother, Mary Magdalene, who had been healed of demons by Jesus, a, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, what are they showing up on Sunday morning to do? Anybody know? They're coming to wrap the body in spices. Does that strike you as a problem? What were they not planning to find? An open tomb. They thought there was going to be a body there. This is Jesus' mom. I've, I've said before, I know this is a little irreverent, but I have this image of Jesus coming out on Sunday morning as the sun comes up, Jesus stepping out of the tomb and going, really? No one? No one believed me. Not a single person? I mean, here's the two angels who are like, sorry, like, we, it was just us when we got here. There's... I mean, shouldn't there have been a crowd of people, the disciples, from the moment he died? They should have been running around the streets like, it's okay, it's okay, show up on Sunday morning. We're going to be there before, we're going to get up at midnight. I mean, this, this is like, you know, when episode one was released in Star Wars before we all knew how bad it was going to be. Everyone was camping out, and we were up, up all night. I mean, we, were, we stayed in line. We had friends who camped out in, all over the country and couldn't wait, and it was all... That's what should have happened on Sunday morning, right? There should have been a huge crowd of Jesus' followers standing there. Hey, he said he was coming back in three days. We don't know exactly how he's going to count three days, but Sunday would be plausible. So we're showing up Sunday morning early. We're going to camp out here and wait for him to show up. Jesus comes out of the tomb and is like, cricket, 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 cricket. Like, seriously, no one. Not a single one of my followers. This is, this is a big moment that even his top followers, his mother, didn't they, they thought they were coming to find a body. You don't write that into the fictionalized account. You don't make his mother look stupid. You don't make his disciples look like morons in a moment like this. They're not even there. When the women go back and tell them, hey, we found Jesus, they're like, yeah, you're crazy. They didn't buy it. A couple of them ran to the tomb, found it was empty. Later, the guys on the way to Emmaus are all confused about this. Hey, our women said something nuts, but you know, you know how women are. Here's why it's hard of why that's important. That's exactly how they would have taken this. It would have been a huge embarrassment to the early Christians that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Women were not respected as witnesses in first century Israel. I've read that they, not, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. Now, we don't believe that anymore, but they did. And so for them to have women being the first witnesses, there's no reason at all you would fictionalize that. If you're creating a fiction, you, that might be when you put Joseph of Arimathea in the story. A member of the council, a well-respected man, a believer, maybe he's the one who shows up and is like, hey, the tomb is it. That would have been nice in court. Why would you have women being the ones who, who discovered the tomb? 
Why would they put that in the Gospels? Because it's what happened. That's really the only rational option. Is that the early church, the disciples, they didn't know to show up because they thought he was dead and still in the body. They didn't know that the women show up expecting a dead body to be wrapped in spices. They're shocked. Everyone is blown away. The disciples are now wandering around. I mean, you have two of them walking to Emmaus. This is clueless as they could possibly be. Didn't you hear about Jesus? He's dead. I mean, they're having those same conversations, and they're supposed to know better, but they don't. The early church, the early disciples, no idea. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, again, he says, For I delivered you as many as of first importance what I now received, that Christ died for our sin. This part is the, is the creed, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15. Many people believe this is a creed from almost immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. This was probably a praise song for the early Christians. It was a way they greeted one another and tested one another with, these, with those three little statements. Paul probably adds, then he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, Apostle Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is, this is a big deal. Listen, <clears throat> Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying, say, maybe 35, 40 years later. He's saying to the people who are reading this book, reading 1 Corinthians, this is, listen, if you don't believe me, all you got to do is ask around. See, we, we forget that for the apostles and for apparently 500 other people, this wasn't a, I believe what I'm told. This was history for them. This was not a religious study. This was a history. This was current events. They either saw Jesus alive or they didn't. They know whether. You can't, you can't put that they were fooled under here. You're, you're stuck with the disciples being liars if Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. Not only Cephas, not only, the, notice the women aren't listed here. Paul doesn't reference the fact, a bunch of women, you know. Here's what matters. Cephas, that's a, I mean, this is part of the story here. Um, uh, okay, so that you want to hear. In fact, here's what's key. I love the fact that we even have the, the skeptic, the Apostle Thomas, who we call the doubter, who after he's lived with these guys for three years and traveled with them for three years, and he's interacting with them three-ish years, and, and now they come back and they say, hey, Thomas, guess what? You missed, um, you missed church on Sunday and Jesus showed up. That's how that, that's how that always happens. And so, and so the, the, he goes, I... We saw him. He was there. And Thomas says, I don't believe you. I mean, we have a hardline skeptic in our midst here. I won't believe it until I see it for myself, until I put my finger in his arm and I put my hand in his side. I won't buy it. So Jesus makes it apparently a special trip back for Thomas. And I've always pictured that being an awkward conversation with Thomas, that Jesus shows up suddenly and he walks over to Thomas and he goes, well, and I imagine Thomas being like, no, really, it's, I'm Okay. I don't, I don't need it. And Jesus says, no, I seem to recall someone saying they wouldn't believe unless they put their finger in the wounds of my hand. So, brink, right? I want you to see that's here. I mean, it'd be kind of gross. But the, the, here's the hole in my side. You need to see this. You need to experience this. That same Thomas who said, I'm not believing any of these jokers, he then spent the rest of his life spreading the gospel everywhere he could traveling around the known world. Some people say all the way to Great Britain at that time. That's a long way in order to tell them the gospel and then died for it. 
most of these men died for it. In fact, that's the last evidence I want to give you is this. Is that these men and women, almost without exception, died for this belief. So if I said, if you got an email tomorrow saying, hey, uh, we're sorry that we messed up Easter morning, but the problem was Chris was in a car accident um, on Sunday morning before he got to church and was killed. And so that really threw us off, you know, really threw off our Sunday morning, and we're so sorry that it was so hectic, and you'd be going, I thought I saw him Sunday morning. Wasn't that him on stage? Maybe it was one of the other redheaded staff members. I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure it was him. It, it, yeah, 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 it was him. I remember because, you know, the lilies and the, uh, yeah, I remember. It was him for sure. And then, so you respond to the email like, no, no, I, it was Chris. Chris was there. I don't know why you're saying he's dead. He wasn't dead. It was, but then the police or the army show up at your house and they say, hey, we intercepted your email that you said Chris was alive. Well, we're, we're committed to the idea that he's dead. And so we're going we're gonna to start hitting you with sticks until you admit he's dead. He, he's dead. He wasn't there Sunday morning, right? Isn't that what you agreed to? You sign here. And some people go like, oh, I would, I would, no, you wouldn't. Once they started hitting you on something like this, this doesn't really matter. We're talking about just some guy up on stage. It doesn't make any difference very quickly. Certainly once they dragged your kids into the room and said, we're going to beat your kids or grandkids to death unless you, unless you admit he was, that you're a liar and that he wasn't really there. Very quickly, you'd be like, you know what? That's fine. I'll, I'll sign. What do you want me to sign? I'll sign it. The truth is most people won't die for what they know is true, what they even personally experienced. But no one dies for something that they know is a lie. No one dies for something they know is a lie. Unless there's something really huge to gain, no one dies for something that they know is a lie. And for the disciples, this was history. It either happened or didn't, and they know whether it happened or didn't. And for generations, for the next decades of their life, they were chased down and killed. Kind of systematically one after the other. Until they finally got to John about 50 or 60, 70 years later, um, and here he is, they've got him stung, strung out on an island um, all by himself in isolation where we get the book of Revelations, what he wrote while he was out there. But we have all, all in, in between there, we have the disciples being hunted down, arrested, killed one after the other. Peter probably crucified upside down, according to church legend. Um, some of the others, awful deaths. The Romans love to crucify people. They like to skin people alive. Um, they like to boil people alive. They like to burn people. One of, their, one of the ones that I think is most fascinating because it requires so much work is they would hollow out a log and then put the person inside of the log and then saw the log in half so that it would take longer. Those are the kind of tortures that the first Christians, and again, remember, they're not believing the words of someone else. They were there. They know whether Jesus was alive or not. They know whether he was alive, and they know whether he was dead, and they know whether he was back alive, and they died excruciating deaths, and all of them risked excruciating deaths to take that stance. No one does that unless they are absolutely convinced of the truth of it. So, <clears throat> we're left with, I, it is more rational for me to believe that Jesus Christ, who was alive and who was dead, was resurrected from the grave. It's easier for me to believe. It requires less blind faith for me to believe that than to believe that these men and women stole the body somehow from under the nose of the Romans, hid it, then wrote these fictions, and then were systematically killed without a single one of them recanting of the original bunch. We have no record of even any of the original ones recanting their faith. Not one. So in other words, I'm supposed to believe that they kept a conspiracy that secret for that long under torture. 
Man, you ever tried to find a, a surprise birthday party? You let the fourth person know, and you might as well just tell the person you're planning the party for, right? No one can keep things a secret, and it's sort of simple. This mattered. People were being killed for this stuff. And I'm supposed to believe that a bunch of people who apparently didn't even believe in the resurrection happening, that they didn't believe it was going to happen, none of them showed up for it. His own mom shows up expecting a body, and yet, do you see that it's more rational to believe that he was resurrected from the grave than the other options? Now, I'm just telling you this to remove barriers out of the way, because here's the deal. I want you to experience the, the all-powerful love of the almighty God who loves you. And if, and if rational belief is something that's in your way, understand we can take every different doctrine of Christianity and engage with it like this. If rationality is in your way, don't let it. Do your research. Do your homework and you'll discover. Every one of these pins has been knocked over. Every one of these barriers is gone. But honestly, that's probably not what holds most of us back. The truth is God is crazy about you, crazy enough to make things right with us. Something he didn't need, but he wanted us. So he paid that price. He stands at the door and knocks. Will we open the door and let him in is the question before us. He will change your life forever. And let's admit real quickly that that's really the part we struggle with. The part we struggle with is that he's going to change our life forever. And maybe for many of us, there's no evidence sufficient to, let it, to make us rethink our lives. There's no evidence sufficient to make us be willing to change our lives, the way we treat our spouses, the way we treat our families, the way we decide about career paths, the way we make decisions about the money that we think is ours. Like, that's what we really struggle with in the faith, if we admit it. He paid a price. He conquered death. So the goal has been to remove barriers. So that you can hear this passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you walked, following the course of the world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Angry, resentful, broken, rebellious, afraid, whatever. Verse 4, but God, God stepped in. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And he raises us up with him and seats us, seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He is truly crazy about us. My goal, hopefully, for some of you is just training. Some of you as Christians, you need the faith boost of the reminder. This is reasonable. This makes sense. It's what happened. For those of you who don't, and these are barriers that are in the way for you, I want to knock those down so that you can experience the love of God filling the gap created by those barriers being removed. I hope that's what's happening. The Spirit is probably calling some of you to put your faith in Christ. You can sense that inside. Don't reject that call. Say yes. Let today be the day of salvation. Let's pray, and we'll close out our time this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word, and thank you that you are a God of truth. Thank you that it is the truth that sets us free, and we are set free by your Son. We're free indeed. <clears throat> Father, I pray that however your Spirit is working in our hearts, I pray that it will be accomplished, that we will listen and submit 
We can put our faith in your son. And I thank you for those who are guests with us today. I pray you'll bring them back so we can get to know them and become friends. I pray that this will be a a church home for many, many. Father, I, I thank you for those who are hurting, for their willingness to be here. Lord, I pray and lift them up before you. I pray your spirit will comfort them as the God of all comfort. And I pray your spirit, which also convicts us, will convict those who need brokenness, every one of us. Lord, we ask all of these through the name of your magnificent Son, the Lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of time, but revealed in these days for our sake. We pray this according and through the power of your sanctifying Holy Spirit. And Lord, according to your perfect foreknowledge and will, we ask all of it. Amen.